This is the Savvy Parent Podcast, where lawyer and financial planning expert Shannon McNulty and her guests share tips on how to make smart legal and financial decisions for your family. On this episode of the Savvy Parent Podcast, lawyer Shannon McNulty is back for our next area of the estate plan deep dive, healthcare proxies, and a related document, living wills. Shannon clarifies the purpose of each of these directives and important details, including why you need them, who should have them, and what you need to be aware of when you choose who to designate as your healthcare proxy. Choosing a healthcare proxy and helping your person understand your wishes is one of the most considerate things you can do for your loved ones. Stick around for this important episode. Well, I am so glad to be back on the podcast with you, Shannon. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. So we are doing another area of this deep dive into the estate plan. We are talking about healthcare proxies and a related document, living wills. But let's start off. What is a healthcare proxy? A healthcare proxy is a legal document that authorizes someone to make medical decisions for you if you're not able to make those decisions yourself. Okay. So very straightforward, but I feel like there's a lot to unpack there, which we will get into. And how is that different from the living will? A living will is a document that is, it's often sometimes called a medical directive or advanced directive. And it's a legal instruction to your doctor, to your healthcare provider, as to what actions they should take under certain situations. So the healthcare proxy, you're appointing someone to make decisions for you. And the living will is you're making specific decisions for yourself in the future. Okay. Now, can the person you choose as your healthcare proxy override what your living will says? How does, how does that work? Mm-hmm. Most cases, no. Okay. So that's where is really, there's really a, a bit of a disconnect between the healthcare proxy and the living will, or, you know, in some cases, people are very set on what they would want and they would not want their healthcare proxy to overrule it. But it is something that I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about. And it's important to kind of understand the difference and know what it is you're authorizing or, or you're, you're directing. Okay. So what are the situations that, that a healthcare proxy would come into play that someone would make those decisions on your behalf? A doctor has to determine that you're not capable of making those decisions yourself. So a doctor has to make that decision. And then if there is a document saying that this person, this is the person who I would want to make this decision, then the doctor is going to um, honor the, that person's decision. Okay. So in an unfortunate situation, um, if we found ourselves, we can't make our own medical decisions. Um, is there sort of a, which comes first? Do they look for a living will? Do they look to see if there's a healthcare proxy? Do both of those things happen at the same time? Like we're incapacitated. We don't see what's happening now behind the scenes. So can you kind of paint that picture of, of how that might look in that situation? Right. So often in your medical document. We'll just call it that because this there could be a variety of things in this document. There could be an appointment of a healthcare proxy to make decisions for you for you. And then there could also be an advanced directive or directive to the doctor as to what to do under certain circumstances as to in terms of instructions as to what what you would want. That means that those instructions, those directives have to be followed. But your healthcare proxy, there may be other questions that come into play. 
so often that directive is only under certain specific scenarios. For example, you're in a permanent vegetative state or you have a terminal illness with no hope of recovery. So there are maybe other situations where you're not able to make a decision that needs to be made. For example, you're in a coma and maybe surgery needs to be made. Certain They have questions about which um, medications you should be on, but you're not in you're not brain dead. You're, you're just out of it or even, you know, you're sedated. So there may be decisions that need to be made. And those would not be decisions you would make ahead of time. They would just be because you don't know what it is. Those decisions are going to be. And I think that this goes to the heart of what the issue is with this particular document and the concept of a living will and these instructions and the kinds of decisions that you're making is that you're making literally life and death decisions for circumstances under which you have no information at the time you're making them. Unless, of course, you've already been diagnosed, you know, with stage four cancer or something like that. And you're, right. or you're you know, you're way along into your 90s and, and you're not well or something. And, and you kind of know that certain things are imminent. But in most cases, people who are healthy are making decisions about circumstances that they know nothing about. So they have no idea why it is that they're going to end up in this situation. It was about a car accident. How old would they be? They could be 30 or they could be 60. They could be 90, you know, because you're making this, putting this document in place, but it could be in place for a very long time. It's in place until you change your mind. So, um, so I think this is where it's really challenging. I think both for people making this document and also for family members and for healthcare providers. But I think it does, uh, at the heart of this is a question as to who do you want to make that decision? How much information do you need to make that decision? And so those are all concepts that are questions that are, are almost like, um, you know, epistemological. <laughs> yeah, that's huge. Yeah, that's huge. <laughs> like, so much uncertainty around this. And in fact, in New York state, as well as many other states, a living will is not actually um, necessarily enforceable. Mm. So they do not recognize that you can make a decision about your life or death before you're in that situation. And that's true of a number of different states as well, just because of this the uncertainty of it. You might think, and, and I think we've probably all been in situations where we thought, oh gosh, I don't know what I would do if I was in that situation. You know, like how do somebody survive if they have whatever it is wrong with them? And the fact of the matter is that you get through those things and often and and we adjust. And certainly the person who has all of these things wrong isn't thinking, well, you know, my life is no longer worth living. So, So I think, you know, our way we think about things can change very dramatically. And making those kind of irrevocable decisions is something that even the state takes quite seriously. So, you know, it, it, it's an interesting question as to which is the, the best way in terms of a public policy. Yeah. Wow. That's, yeah, it's a big responsibility and it's a probably a, a big situation and challenge to walk into if you find yourself as a healthcare proxy having to go and sort of make these decisions for another person. So 
we hope we don't have to use that power and that um, we don't find ourselves in that position. But what happens if someone does become incapacitated, has had the car accident, but they don't have a healthcare proxy or even a, I know you said the living will isn't always enforceable and it, it may not be specific to that situation, but what if you haven't chosen a person to make these decisions for you? Then it, in most, it varies by state. In most states, including New York, it will um, fall to your next of kin, basically your closest relative. So if you're married, it's going to fall to your spouse. Um, if you aren't married, if you don't have a spouse, then it may fall to your kids if they're over 18 um, or to your parents, then to a sibling. So there's sort of a, a whole long line of, of people that it would fall to. So you know, you might not want it to be your spouse, especially right. maybe not getting along that well with your spouse, especially where, you know, you're thinking about divorce, whatever. Then the last person maybe you want is for your spouse to be the one who makes that decision. And you see this yeah. a lot in divorcing couples, the divorce isn't final, they haven't necessarily filed, but this is something that, you know, if, if you were in a situation um, where somebody had to make a decision about your life or death, maybe you wouldn't want it to be that person. Also, if you're not married, who, who is that? You need to check your state law to see who it is who would make that decision. And often it might not be the person who you want it to be. So uh, that's why having these documents is really important. Yeah. So can you give any guidance on how to choose that person or what to look out for? I think on previous episodes, you know, especially we've talked about guardians, you've given our listeners really good things to think about for how you choose the, the people that go along with these important documents. Can you give us any insight on how to pick someone who's this is this is really big. I mean, you know, we've talked about power of attorney. That was huge. This is re- really life and death. So can you help us at all figure this out, especially if it's you don't want to choose your spouse or you are single, you know, when it's maybe not, there's that obvious choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the main factor I would say is one, you want somebody you can trust and two, somebody who would respect your values and your decision. So you wouldn't, if you wouldn't want to be kept alive, you certainly wouldn't want to pick someone who had religious objections to not taking those measures. So that I think it was probably the biggest consideration, making sure that they would be not only follow your instructions, but be comfortable with it. You don't want to be some, put somebody in a position where they feel like they have to make a, a moral decision that they're not comfortable with. So that I think would be the the most the biggest factor, and then also just someone who you're pretty close to. So if something happened that they would you know, know about it and it would be easy for, for somebody to reach them. Yeah. And does this need to be someone who is local? Can they be out of the, the state or out of the country? And, and do you recommend that it is someone geographically close or does that not matter in, in this case? I think that the most important thing is you pick the person you're most comfortable with and that you trust most. Even for people who are outside of the country, if they have family outside of the country, this is a role that you can have, even if you're not located in the U.S., even if you have no U.S. citizenship or visa or anything. So I would just say, pick the person who you would trust most. If you do have somebody who's outside of the States, um, you may want to make sure you have maybe somebody here who's a backup, just so that in case there's any problem getting in touch with that person, that there is somebody um, who's closer by. We also we always choose a backup anyway, but if you have somebody who's outside of the country, then I would say that uh, you should probably have an alternate that 
who is in in the U.S. Okay. And from sort of a practical standpoint, when you're creating these documents, obviously um, you as the person choosing sign the documents formally. Does your choice also sort of sign in agreement to it? Is that part of the the paperwork or is it I choose them and now I've signed and it's sort of legally binding? Um, they don't need to sign. Okay. And however, you can't make somebody right play put you know take that. I, role, I would right? hope there's no scenarios where that's happening. I'm thinking more of just internationally. Do we need? Are we sending documents? You know, or is this something that we can just sort of we've talked about it? We can get to our lawyer. We can sign the paperwork, and then it's done, and we can breathe that sigh of relief. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and you're seeing this. This is a question that has come up a lot in the last in the past. What is it now? Eight. Like forever, but you know, <laughs> it's past eight months, forever. Eight, eight months, months. <laughs> eight months that we've been going on with the pandemic of COVID nineteen, and and people are ending up unfortunately in the hospital on yeah. a respirator, and they're not able to make decisions for themselves because they're not conscious. And not only that, but people relatives aren't able to go in to see them. Yeah, there were times when relative could not even go into the hospital. They're are some variations and adjustments now that have been made, but it really depends on what the state of the hospital is at that point. And um, so in those cases, we've just had doctors making telephone calls and these decisions have been being made over telephone. So um, so it, it is something that the healthcare providers are pretty flexible about. It's not like a, a bank or something like that where yeah. they're requiring million documents to to verify something so um so so yeah so so that has been something that has been pretty flexible during this time uh, because they really have had very little choice yeah well that's of course we don't like thinking through these circumstances but that is good to know now i'm wondering so um in a, a family let's say where you've got parents and children the parents obviously we want to make sure that we have a healthcare proxy and perhaps a living will with directives what about our kids? Now we are their parents, right? And we're also their next of kin. Do we need to create a healthcare proxy for them? Or is that just sort of an automatic privilege we now get from being a parent? That's one of the many privileges. Okay. Feed <laughs> <laughs> them, shelter them, make all those decisions. Um, but do you recommend, <laughs> do you recommend a backup Aside from the parents, especially if it's a single parent situation, should there be um, legal documentation around that? So yeah, so that's a good question because sometimes if a parent wouldn't, for whatever reason, not be reachable, and also in this, this doesn't. This is actually a little bit different than the healthcare proxy issue because children need authorization for care in any event. They cannot consent to their own medical care for any reason. So you almost have to just constantly. You just constantly have uh, somebody else making those decisions for you. And while you have parents or a legal guardian, those those are the people who are making those decisions. If that person is not available, then you would the parent or the guardian would have to authorize um, medical care in their absence. So sometimes we do have I have clients who are going overseas, and just in case anything happens and they're not reachable. Um, they will authorize in New York. You can have a temporary authorization for, I believe it's maybe six up to six months, somewhere between three months and six months. 
that authorizes someone else to make medical, authorize medical treatment for the child. So just taking your a child to the doctor or the dentist, even like if you're not there, they're not going to, they're not going to take yeah. care of your child. So that could be a really big issue. Um, so it's kind of a whole different type of uh, healthcare authorization when you have kids who are under the age of 18. Got it. Now you've already given us some really good New York specific information. Is there anything else um, for your New York clients that you want to share or anything else that's maybe state specific that we just need to keep an eye out for? I know you said living wills, for example, they can't be enforced in certain states. So anything else um, that we should just look out for? So my advice would be that if you don't want to continue to be hooked up, for lack of a better way of saying this, Mm -hmm. you need to make that clear. And not only because, well, for example, in New York, you need evidence that that person did not want to continue to be hooked up. So if there's no evidence, then, for example, and some kind of document, then they won't necessarily allow the healthcare proxy to make the decision to unplug you. So so I tell my clients it's better to make that clear even if you the healthcare agent might override that because the hospitals are going to err on the side of keeping you alive in whatever shape or form. The other thing is that not only legally is it important, but also just, this is one of the documents that I think is really, it's one of the things that's the most considerate thing that you can do for your loved ones. Because even in the healthcare proxy, like I said, the living wills and healthcare proxy, all of these things can kind of get mushed together. But you want to have some kind of guidance for the person making your decision. And whether it's in the document or whether you tell them separately, whether you write it down separately, it's really important for their, that person's mental health, that they know what it is that you would want. Because you can just imagine the agony of trying to make that decision in any circumstance. But if you really didn't know what that person wanted, then, I mean, you could be carrying that around the rest of your life. Right. So, um, so I think just for the, out of respect for those people in your family or whoever it is that's going to be making those decisions that, uh, you make sure that you have your wishes known. Yeah. So now that we're all scared and inspired to make sure we have these documents in place, um, how, how do we go, how do we go about legally creating these? You know, we've talked sometimes like this is a DIY document. This is not. Can we find this on the internet? Should we be going to a lawyer? How how should we be creating these documents? This is actually one of the documents where I I tell people that you know if they can't afford a lawyer, go on the internet and find the state usually has a specific form. There's also a website called Five Wishes that allows you to has a form you could fill out that is valid in most states. And that's something you could just download on the internet and you have to have two witnesses sign. I think in almost every state you have to have two witnesses sign, but it, but it is something I think it's, it's not that complicated. You know, I think lay people can usually make sense of it. So that's a document. I feel like that could be a DIY. Okay. 
And then a related question. I feel like, um, you know, I recall through my insurance, they say, have you chosen your designated person? So I think oftentimes our, our insurance companies are encouraging us to do that. Is that a separate piece? Should there also be a separate legal document outside of what we've declared with our insurance? Yeah. So the insurance, it might be like an emergency contact, but whatever your healthcare proxy or advanced directive is, it usually revokes any other documents, any other related documents. So I think it's better to have one because it, you, you could end up having things out there that if you change them and you don't remember that, well, somebody had a different one, then um, then it could be a lot very confusing as to who is supposed to make that decision. So okay. what I would recommend is you have the one that's the original, you keep that somewhere safe, and you could give a copy of that to, uh, often they'll ask for it if, you go in, if you're admitted to the hospital. Um, you could also give a copy to your uh, family or your personal physician to keep a copy of. So a lot of times doctor's offices will keep those on file. Okay, that's good to know. So as we wrap up this episode, so much great information, but what are two or three takeaways you really want our listeners to remember about healthcare proxies? That it's really easy to do. That it's really important for uh, your loved ones to know what it is your wishes are. And to be very considerate about understanding when you are executing this document, what it is that you're authorizing. So are you authorizing someone to make this decision for you? Or are you directing somebody to make a specific decision regardless of what it is your healthcare agent would want? Oh, such a big topic, but I think, you know, you've, you've, I know it is, it's a heavy one, but I think as always, you've given just such good information that even though these are important and stressful topics. I think you've also really just helped to clarify and inform and stress us out just a little bit, but also just kind of help us feel like, okay, I know what to do and I know what I need to look out for. So Shannon, thank you so much for all of this great information. Great. Thank you, Sarah. As always, a lot of great information for parents, this time about healthcare proxies and living wills. To gather more information on these topics and other areas of your financial and estate plans, and to join our free community, come visit us at thesavvyparent.us.